the year was around 875 B.C. Uh, the prophet Elijah had just called hundreds of false leaders uh, to meet in, we'll call it the United Center, okay? Uh, and so everybody's there. There's a crowd of people. There's the hundreds of these leaders, and there's Elijah. Um, he has been the underdog in a years-long contest with the people who are in power in his nation, Israel. There was King Ahab, and there was Jezebel the queen, and they were kind of in a tug of war for the hearts of the people of this nation to determine whether or not they would worship the living God, the true God, Elijah's namesake, for those of you who don't know this, uh, Elijah's namesake, his name is Eliyah, which is just basically the Lord, he is God. So here is Elijah, and then here is Ahab and Jezebel, and they're kind of pulling back and forth, and man, Elijah is the underdog because it's a one-man army against all of these other powers. But in one miraculous moment, Elijah prevails. The land, after this moment at the United Center, the land which has experienced three years of drought, now when Elijah prays, rain begins pouring down. So, I mean, it is like things are going great for Elijah right now, okay? Uh, he had this big showdown that he won, and then when he prayed, the rain came down. There is a warrant out for his arrest, mind you, but he outruns a chariot. This is like another like, kind of like little thing in the Bible where you read it and you're like, exactly how did this happen? But the Bible says that he, you know, picked up his, his, uh, his skirt, you know, and, and basically just ran and outruns a chariot all the way to the capital city, which is called Jezreel. Now, at this point is when things take a really unexpected turn because so far he has been racking up the W's, right? <laughs> Here's what our text says in 1 Kings 19 if you want to follow along. It says this, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of those. Now these are the, those leaders, the prophets that had now been killed. Elijah was afraid. Here's where it gets curious. Elijah was afraid, and he ran for his life. When he came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there, while he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a broom bush, sat under it, and prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the bush and fell asleep. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank, and then he lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, Get up, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up, ate, and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. After the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. 
Thank you, Lord, for this text. I pray, God, that you would speak to each heart and that you would bring encouragement and comfort and direction for us in Jesus' name. And all God's people said amen. Amen. So it's curious because when our text opens, the man of God is crumbling in despair. And if you read the story, it almost seems like there was like a mistake in the editing, like this should have gone at a different part of Elijah's life and a different part of his story because it seems very out of order. Somebody who experienced such an incredible victory, or like I said, who's racked up all these W's, would not be so depressed. But I think after some reflection on the story, there's a reason for his fear, for his depression, for his anxiety, and it's this. He thinks this is the moment when his nation is going to turn back to God. He has had this incredible victory against the prophets of this false god called Baal. He has prayed, and the entire nation knows that he had prayed for, the, for no rain, and now he's praying for the rain, and it comes. And he thinks at this very moment, surely the leaders, Ahab and Jezebel, are going are to fall down in repentance and say, you're right, man, you've been right all along, and we're going to get things right around here. But here's what happens. Instead of this momentum sweeping from Mount Carmel, where that United Center, from United Center to Jezreel, the capital, where he runs to, to be ready for that great moment, instead of when he gets to Jezreel, instead of them falling down on their knees in repentance, Jezebel says, boy, I'm going to put, I'm going to stake my life on this that I'm going to kill you before the day's up. <laughs> He's expecting change, but no change comes. And I think this is why he gets really depressed. Instead of a changed heart or a humbled heart, Jezebel and Ahab are doubling down on their threats. And they're going to fight it out to the bitter end. And this is when Elijah realizes that, man, things are not really going to change. And he loses heart. Here's one of the, the greats in the Bible, right? And it's encouraging to know, uh, at least in some way, that even the greats lose heart. Okay? So a few points for you today. For those of you who, are, who, are, who take notes, who are note takers, let me just start out by this. Number one point, everyone gets discouraged. Everyone gets discouraged. Now, these points are not going to be like, I, I don't know, I, I kind of looked at them, I'm like, you know, these are fairly basic, but I, I really feel like it's important when we're talking about a subject like, like this to be clear and direct, and everybody gets discouraged. So if you feel that way, you are not alone. I remember there was a point, in, a low point in my life where I called a mentor of mine, actually, I called Pastor Tim Delina, who's going to be here in a few weeks, and he was asking me how I was doing. I said, you know what, honestly, I'll, I'll, be, I'll shoot straight with you, I'll be real with you, I don't want to live. <laughs> I had experienced such profound loss in my life at the time that I was like, I, I don't want to live. I would like to die. That's what I said. And he said, well, then you're in good company. That's what he said. So that's what you can come and experience in a couple of weeks. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> he said, you're in good company. He said, I've known so many great men and women of God. I've known so many people who try to serve the Lord with all their heart who've experienced that very same thing, Steve. You're not alone. So I want you to know today, you're not alone. Everyone gets discouraged. Everyone gets discouraged. There was a study uh, that, I, that I, I, uh, I read about and then I also heard about uh, by two guys named Thomas Gilovich and Shai Davidai. And uh, they called it this, the, their study, the Headwinds, Tailwinds Asymmetry. All right? And basically their study was this. They were looking at 
um, this idea of what people experience and how they respond to having a tailwind in their life, meaning feeling like things are really propelling them forward and going well for them, versus when they face discouraging moments or headwinds, if you will. Now, for those people who were experiencing headwinds and not tailwinds, they almost always felt that they were being treated unfairly. And across situations and across people groups, it was interesting, their study really showed that people would exaggerate the headwinds, but then minimize the tailwinds, if you will. They would exaggerate the challenges, and they would forget about the wind at their back. Does that make sense? We've all done that before. Secondly, they, they, they said this, it was harder for people who were experiencing headwinds to practice gratitude in the midst of their headwinds. I thought it was really interesting. It was harder for them to pick out the good things in their life, even though circumstances were nearly identical to other people when they were, when they were experiencing, it was harder for them to experience gratitude. And thirdly, I thought this was really interesting, they said that when people felt that they were unfairly treated, almost all of them, uh, they used some different examples of sports teams. I thought it was great. Sports teams um, who would... Uh, they would look at their schedule, and they would always pick out the hard teams that they were playing in that season, right? And then they would, they would, uh, they, they talked about siblings, who all, both siblings or individuals and families in, with multiple siblings, all feeling like their other siblings were favored by their parents, right? Um, people actually had this idea that tornadoes were more deadly than asthma, even though asthma is 20 times more deadly than tornadoes every year. They, they, they just went across the board. They found all this stuff, and they said when people felt that they were at a disadvantage in some reason, when they interpreted those headwinds as being an unfair disadvantage in their lives, they were more likely and more willing to bend the rules and to compromise in their lives when they felt like they were at a disadvantage or they'd been victimized in some way. So they were saying it's harder to be a, a good human being, basically, when you're facing these headwinds. And I, I mean, this is what research oftentimes is, is it just says, yep, we know for sure what we already knew for sure, <laughs> right? And that is that all of us react to this stuff and to difficulty in our lives in ways that kind of maximize or uh, dial up those disadvantages or those discouraging things in our lives. Now, that's not to say that just because we all get discouraged that we aren't all blessed, right? We live in a world filled with beauty and with goodness. Theologians call it common grace. That means that no matter who you are, whether you're the worst person in the world or the best person in the world, you get to experience God's common grace and the beautiful things and the sunsets and the, and the, uh, the wonderful rain and all the good things that happen in, in our world. That's a common grace that we experience. But there is also a profound brokenness that touches us all. And so I've said this many times but I'll say it again, serve God long enough, and you will have seasons when your exclamation points turn to question marks. What I used to exclaim with great certainty and fervor, now I'm saying, instead of God is good, I'm saying God is good, <laughs> right? It wasn't that Elijah was afraid of Jezebel's threats. I don't even think Elijah was afraid to die. I think that he was afraid that all of his effort would produce no change at all. I think that that's the thing that usually breaks us when we, when we raise our kids right and they still don't act the way that they should. 
when you've done everything right in your job and you still don't get the promotion or don't get the recognition that you feel you deserve. When you're patient and loving, but your spouse's heart doesn't seem to change. When you, are, when you live in purity and when you're trying to walk with the Lord, but you're single and you're going on 30 or more. We pray and we pray and it doesn't feel like God answers. And I think when we see that things aren't changing, that's when we lose heart. Jesus himself experienced discouragement. I mean, think about him in the garden. He prayed at this moment, let, let this cup of suffering, let this cup of, 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 uh, of, uh, of, of difficulty pass. And then on the cross, we know he cried out in agony. And I think it's really funny because most people, like, they expect people who are suffering or who are going through discouragement, discouraging times not to vocalize it. But Jesus wasn't on the cross saying, hey, bless God, I'm just waiting for my miracle. <laughs> He was there in the midst of that moment, crying out in pain. Now, we all get discouraged, right? Now, for us to think somehow that when we're discouraged, we won't actually feel it, express it, experience it, and be in that is, is kind of an unfounded optimism, right? Like, we, we all kind of have felt the pressure to maybe, like, be optimistic in a situation when we really don't feel very optimistic about it. My dog is, is super optimistic. I think, everybody, I think we love dogs for this reason, right? They wake up every day. I wish I could wake up as excited as my dog every day. He's pumped about life. I mean, he's like, man, you're never going to believe it. I went to sleep last night, and I got up, and everything was still here. It was so awesome. He's like, hey, do you, do you think we could uh, have some of that stinky brown food and a bowl of water for me? That would be awesome, right? He's super pumped about life. I, I think that there's this kind of unfounded optimism that we feel a pressure to have. But I, I'm not trying to encourage that or advocate for that today, but I also want to warn you against an unhopeful pessimism, okay? This is a kind of cynical, self-fulfilling view of the world that is negative in nature, that is negative about people, that is negative about situations. Sometimes we try and mask it as realism, and I'll come back to that in a minute, but uh, we all are kind of comforted sometimes by that attitude, right? Um, there are some phrases that I picked up, some things that I found um, that I, I just think are great. They make me chuckle and they make me feel good because they're negative, all right? The secret to success is knowing who to blame for your failures, all right? Every dark cloud has a silver lining, but lightning kills hundreds of people each year who are trying to find it. This is a good one. We should teach our children the importance of forgiveness. It's our only hope of surviving their wrath once they realize how bad we've messed up. Uh, this is a... a a great one. People live by this one. Hard work pays off after time, but laziness pays off now. And this is probably the most cynical of them all. Uh, it's always darkest just before it goes pitch black. <laughs> now, we laugh at those things because there's some comfort that we get because we all feel, we all kind of like tend in that direction sometimes. Pessimism, cynicism is a retreat from any true effort at hope. It's me giving up on hope in a situation. You could call it realism, but it's actually cynicism masquerading as wisdom. So be careful with this one. People have said it to me like this. I'm, I don't want to go to church because church is, that place is filled with hypocrites. And I would say, absolutely it is. Surprise, right? Of course it is. We're all hypocrites. That doesn't mean you give up on church, right? No leader is perfect. No person is perfect. No friend is perfect. That, that doesn't mean that we give up and just decide to, to uh, lose all hope in that. Um, you know, 
People say, I'm, I just can't do this anymore. I, I, I'm gonna, if I try and follow Jesus, I'm probably going to fail. And I would say, yes, you probably are. But that doesn't mean that you give up. Of course you are because you're not perfect. But there's a reason to continue to hope and not just to give up on that hope. Which has a greater virtue, let me ask you today, a good-hearted attempt that ends in failure or the cynical surrender without any try at all? I, I really think cynicism, we need to be careful that we don't mistake that for wisdom. That's not wisdom. And I would say this. I've heard this for many years. I, I don't even remember, recall where I first heard it, but I've repeated it over and over again because I've, I've seen it be true in so many people's lives. A cynical spirit leads to a doubting heart. It's worth noting that today, that we start with cynicism, but then doubt fills our hearts, and it just becomes this, this thing that kind of works its way into our spirit. And I would say today, if that is something that you wrestle with, ask the Lord. I would even say repent of that. Ask the Lord to help you to have hope instead of cynicism. We might get discouraged and wrestle with a negative view or a pessimistic outlook, but there's a difference between having cynicism over for dinner and offering it a room to stay at our house. <laughs> it's always going to visit our lives at different times, but when we create a space for it and make a home for it in our lives, we've got problems. Know this, everyone is going to get discouraged. But here's point number two. God loves us in our discouragement. Some church people are uncomfortable with this topic I found over the years. They think Christians shouldn't get depressed. Um, there's something dishonest and I think unhealthy about ignoring the hurt or the pain or the feelings in our lives. And you need to know today that God's love does not change just because you are discouraged or because you're grieving or because you're depressed or because you feel like you're down. God's love for you, even though it's hard to discern in those moments, has not changed. From the time where you felt your very best, on your best day, God's love is not different than on your worst day. Okay? There might even be some people here today who wonder if life is worth living. You might feel trapped. You might feel hopeless. And I want to encourage you today, and I want you to take note of something important. As despondent as Elijah is in this moment, he does not presume that he can take his own life. That's an important distinction to make. And I hope that it, some of you guys, some of you guys were even shocked that, that there's a guy on stage here who talked about saying that he wanted to die. <laughs> because some of you are like, whoa, that's terrible. Let me just tell you, that's a reality. But even in that moment, I did not presume that I could take my own life. That if, if my life belongs to God, even though I might say, I'm done, I want to check out, that doesn't mean that it's my right to do that. And let me encourage you today, this is important for you to see. Elijah, Elijah's miracle, the transformation that Elijah experienced in his life, and there is a, there is a great resolution to this story that we're not going to get to today, but that all happened because Elijah just didn't presume, he did not presume to take his own life. The simple act sometimes of holding on is an act of faith for people. That might be your greatest moment is when you feel like it's time to check out and you just decide, I'm going to hold on instead. And that simple act of faith is the thing that makes the difference for you. So let me just say very plainly like this. There are no exceptions to God's exceptional love. After Jesus was crucified and buried, his disciples are shattered. They don't know 
that he's even been raised from the dead on day three. He, uh, they're, they're, the, the, in the, the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke tells this story of two of them, um, not, not two of the 12, but two of these followers of Jesus who are on the road to Emmaus. And they, they were told to wait in Jerusalem, but they're discouraged and they're walking in the wrong direction. I love this because they were supposed to wait here and they decided we're, we're done, <laughs> right? Jesus had told this crew of people, everybody wait here in Jerusalem, and then all of a sudden things take a turn for the worse, and now they're like, wait a second, he wasn't planning for this. He probably isn't the guy who we thought he was, and so they've given up. They're walking in the wrong direction. Remember that old song where it says that, and he walks with me, and he talks with me, and he tells me that I am his own, right? Some of the older folk in the room will remember that. I always thought that that meant that he walked with me and he talked with me as long as I stayed positive and full of faith. <laughs> because that is kind of what my experience in church led me to believe that, man, as long as you stay on top of things, as long as you got to cheer, God, bless God, wait for my miracle, right? I'm going to keep, you know, hey, praise God, love you, brother, love you, sister. All those good things that we, we kind of grew up, maybe if you grew up in church, that you felt the pressure to experience that. But here these guys are, and they're walking away. <laughs> And Jesus meets them on the road, right? I love it. Their, their, their hopes have been dashed. They're in the wrong direction, and Jesus is walking with them. And then the Bible says he sits down with them, and he eats with them. He even serves them. Around the same time, Peter has quit the ministry as well, having failed Jesus miserably. And Jesus meets him on the beach after a long night of fishing, and he makes Peter breakfast. It says that when Peter gets onto the beach that Jesus has fixed up some stuff here for him. I love it. My love language is breakfast food. And so when I read this, I'm like, man, Jesus is so good that he, even after Peter has failed him, and even after, after Peter is so discouraged that he's given up, Jesus is still there with him. What do you do with a God who after you've failed him and after you've quit in discouragement serves you breakfast? That's the God that we're talking about today, whose presence we were inviting today. He loves you today, even in your discouragement. Isaiah 42.3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. Think of those images. He doesn't look at you and say, oh, this wick is just smoldering. Let's just put it out. He doesn't say, this reed, it's not looking good. It's got a he, doesn't, he doesn't break it in half. Psalm 103 says he knows how we are formed and he remembers that we are dust. He knows we get discouraged, folks. Oh, the, the mercy and the gentleness of God in our weakness and in our failings. Just think about it. Praise God that he is gentle and merciful when we are discouraged. I want you to hear that today. Our text says that Elijah fires his servant goes to the edge of the wilderness and lays under a bush to die. Some of you guys didn't pick that up, but he basically had a servant who was with him, and the Bible says that he, he said, you're fired, buddy. <laughs> We're done. There's no more projects to work on. <laughs> I'm going to go into the wilderness, and I'm going to die. That's what he does. And then here God is in heaven, and he's got a different plan. He says, I've got stuff for Elijah to do. He's not done yet. So we got to send an, a, an angel to Elijah, and Gabriel speaks up and says, hey, do you need me to bring him a message? That's what I'm good at, God. And God says, no, not you, Gabriel. And the archangel Michael says, do you need me to fight for him? And God says, no, that's not what we're up for. And then God says, I'm going to need somebody, actually, I'm going to need somebody to cook for him. 
So in my mind, this angel who kind of looks like Guy Fieri, you know, speaks up. His hair is spiky and bleached. He's wearing a button-down Hawaiian shirt. And he has an apron, some oven mitts, and like five million years of cooking experience, right? He knows the way to Flavortown, right? He, he is the one that God sends to Elijah, right? And look what he does when he finds Elijah. He doesn't wake him up and say, Elijah, repent of your discouragement, Right? He doesn't even sit down with Elijah. He, Elijah doesn't wake up and the, the, uh, the angel guy, Fieri, is not sitting there with him and say, let's talk this out. He doesn't even say that. The Bible says that he feeds him, that he tells him to rest, which I think is beautiful and says so much about what the Bible has to say about this idea. Listen, how we deal with discouragement says a lot about how we see ourselves and our world. Actually, how we deal with all of our inner life says a lot about how we see our world. Let me just, let me just break that down for you. If I view the world through a materialistic lens, if, meaning if I think we are nothing more than biological constructs, then, then all of my feelings, well, they're just a reaction, a chemical reactions in my body that could be corrected. And so the answer is to correct the chemical imbalance. If I view the world through a, uh, through a moralistic lens, then all of these feelings that I'm having of discouragement, well, they must be the, the result of some spiritual forces or moral decisions on my part. So I've got to pray and believe more, perhaps repent some, and that'll be the answer. If I see these feelings or if I view the world through a psychological lens or see my inner life as purely an emotional response, then I might look to counsel or therapy as the answer. And some of you right now are wondering, well, which one of those do you agree with or do you disagree with all of them? And I would say it's not that none of these perspectives is right. It's that all of them are right. All of these things, the Bible says, it has this integrated view of who we are, emotional, physical, moral, spiritual beings. And it, it, it's so beautiful how God addresses all of these things in our lives. See, for Elijah, it wasn't, hey, Elijah, you know, you need to repent of this discouragement. Or, or hey, Elijah, let's just talk this out. It was, Elijah, you need some rest, buddy. Because part of your discouragement is that you have been running so hard. And if you don't slow down, Things are going to get out of whack. It's beautiful how the Bible gives us, before, before, before uh, you know, modern medicine ever, you know, kind of figured some of this stuff out and said, hey, it's not just about these chemical issues, there's behavioral issues, there's other issues at play here, there's emotional issues. And, and, and before, you know, religion got so narrow that we said, well, everything is a moral issue and you better get it right and then you can feel good. The Bible doesn't take that view. It says all of these things God addresses with mercy and with gentleness in our lives. Look at the care that God takes of Elijah. Isn't it beautiful? He says, you're exhausted. You're discouraged. Eat. I sent the angel Guy Fieri to you. Enjoy. So everyone gets discouraged. God loves us in our discouragement. But point number three, discouragement always requires us to grow in our understanding of God. Elijah needed rest, and that played a part in the discouragement that he felt, but there was something else important that is happening here. Because once Elijah is strengthened, the angel says, you need to get right in your body because God wants to show you more of himself. He sets out on a 40-day journey to listen to God at a, at a place called Mount Horeb. 
Let me ask you really, really uh, plainly. When was the last time that you determined for 40 days to try and listen to God? This is the flip side of it. This is where the pastor is going to speak to you a little bit more directly here, where I'm not just going to remind you of God's love and gentleness, but I'm also going to remind you of how important it is for you once you have strengthened your heart, once you've received grace from God, that you say, you know what, now I'm going to seek him because this discouragement is, is significant for me. It means that God wants to talk to me. Next month, we're going to kick off a 40-day prayer journey leading into the fall. Today actually happens to be our nine-month nine birthday as a church, so give it up for that. Um, and when we look at our vision night on August 3rd and ce summer celebration on August 4th, those weekends are really going to be pointing us toward that one-year anniversary and, and where we're headed in the fall as a church. And part of what we're going to do is we're going to say we want to take 40 days and we want to seek God during that time to hear from God. I want to invite you to be a part of that. We're going to talk more about it. Elijah goes for 40 days, and he ends up at this mountain, and the first thing God says to him is, Elijah, what are you doing here? So let me just tell you, when God asks you a question, it's not because he needs the information, <laughs> right? He, wasn't, he didn't just bump into Elijah and say, what are you doing here? <laughs> you know, he, he was saying, Elijah, I want you to, to start to tell me why you're here. And, he, and Elijah tells God, he says, I did everything I was supposed to do, God, and it didn't work out the way that I thought it should. So now, watch what Elijah says, now I'm not sure who you are. Isn't that interesting? I might not know you, I must not know you as well as I thought I did. And that's probably true for Elijah. Here's what C.S. Lewis said when his wife, Joy Dawson, passed away. He said, not that I am in danger of ceasing to believe in God. The real danger is of coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not, so there's no God after all, but so this is what he's really like. And this is what Elijah is saying. I did everything I thought I was supposed to do, God, but in the end it didn't work out, so I must not know you the way I thought I did. Whether we want it to or not, our seasons of discouragement or even depression are seasons where we wrestle with God because our understanding of him is too small. So let me say it like this. Discouragement doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It means that there's something more for you. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with you. It means that God has something more for you. Pay attention to what is happening in your heart. Pay attention to those seasons of depression and recognize that God might be trying to show you more of himself because your circumstances have made your understanding of him appear, and in reality, they've, they've shown your understanding of him to be too limited. And so God is saying, I have more for you. Most of our moments with God are time-stamped. I can think of the places and the moments where I saw God in a new way. Now, there is this incremental week-to-week -week moment, you know, day-to-day -day reading the Scripture, but there are some moments that I've had with God that are time-stamped, you know, kind of like on that photo that you get where it just says, here's the place, here's the date, here's the time, this is what happened. My grand plan for a lot of years of ministry was invite people to the places where I experience God and invite them to experience God as well. So whether it was literally the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the uh, side of a crater lake in El Salvador 
or whether it was the musty old floor of an old church or whether it was inner city Detroit, the places where God spoke to me and changed my life were the places that I just made a habit out of inviting other people to come to. Just come back here because this is where God spoke to me because I don't know what else to do. <laughs> how do I, you know, how do I orchestrate that? But here is what I think that Elijah is doing. Because it's fascinating, this mountain that in our text is called Mount Horeb, most commentators agree had another name. It was also called Mount Sinai. It was the place where God spoke to Moses. It was the place where those Ten Commandments came. It was the place where Moses hid his face in the cleft of the rock as God passed by him and showed himself to Moses. And isn't it fascinating that here in this moment, now Elijah is there in this same place saying, God, I need you to show yourself to me. Here's my encouragement to you if you're depressed. Find the hollowed out rock where God has spoken to others and start there. This is what has happened to me in my life. I have read the biographies of so many people. I have talked to mentors and people whose lives I respect, whose spiritual lives, who I've seen walk ahead of me in Christ, and I've asked them, how did God speak to you? What, what, where was it? How did it happen? What did you do? And I have just said, okay, I'm going to go to that hollowed out rock. Charles Finney, George Mueller, Amy Carmichael, Harriet Tubman, Hudson Taylor, Corey Ten Boom, D.L. Moody, Catherine Booth, David Livingston, Jim Elliott, Elizabeth Elliott, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Mother Teresa. These are all people whose biographies I've read and who I paid attention to to say, how do I find the hollowed out rock where God spoke to them? And I'll go there and I'll listen and see what God says. Remember, you aren't the first to feel this way. All those people that I just mentioned had profound seasons of depression or discouragement that they wrestled with and God showed himself faithful. God isn't surprised by what's unfolding in your life. He doesn't, he doesn't sitting in heaven saying, hey, I had a great plan for that girl down there, but you know, it looks like there's some budget cuts at her company and so we're going to have to cancel those plans. <laughs> he doesn't go there, you know, hey, I was working with this guy and he was going good, but he's not as sharp as he used to be, so we're going to have to cancel everything. <laughs> God is not surprised by what you're up against. Your circumstances are an invitation to know Him better. So, seek God in seasons of discouragement. God will do a new thing. He is always doing a new thing in your life. He builds on the past, but He loves to do new things. You see, Elijah is in a cave, the same cave, the same cave most commentators believe, where God showed himself to Moses. And so Elijah shows up there and says, I'm going to find that hollowed out rock where Moses met God because I need to find him too. And then God does this. Remember the wind that Moses knew? Right? It was the wind that had parted the Red Sea. You know, and even the Jordan River for Joshua. And God says, well, that's not what I'm doing now. The wind shows up, but God wasn't in it. Right? Then came the earthquake. Remember how when the Ten Commandments came down, the, the Bible says that God touched the mountain and the mountain quaked and the people were afraid. There Moses had experienced that too. And the earthquake shows up again, but Elijah realizes God's not in that now. Then comes the fire, the, the pillar of fire that had come that, that was with the people of Israel through the night, keeping them warm, keeping them protected. God shows up again with Elijah in fire, but Elijah realizes, well, God's not in that now. 
and then God does a new thing. The first time that I know of where the Bible says that he speaks in a whisper. And that's when Elijah says, aha, this is my moment. And he begins to do business with God. Find that hollowed out rock. But know this, God will speak to you in a different way. He'll be doing a new thing in your life and in your heart. He'll be, he'll, he has plans for you that are different than what he's done before. Do not give up in discouragement because the only way you lose is if you quit. God is not done with you yet. God tells Elijah, and this, we didn't read this part of the text, but let me just tell you what he says. He, has, he says, first of all, Elijah, you're not the only one left. I got thousands who haven't bent the knee to Baal. So don't you worry about that. And then he says, I have something different in mind. Instead of you being the hero in this story, I'm going to have you anoint some other folks. I've got Elisha set aside. I've got Jehu set aside. I've got even a guy named Hazael who's a pagan king and says, God says, I'm going to use him too. So don't you think that I'm done yet, Elijah. I've got new things still to do. I might just be here today to tell one person in this room that you thought you were down and out. You thought you were done and finished, but God says, I am not done with you. I've got new things still for you. So hang on and do not give up. Because God will be faithful. We can be discouraged by our circumstances. That's okay. But we are defined by our hopes. We are defined by our hopes. So if you're up against something difficult, let me just, let me just say, hey, the discouragement is real. God is even more real. Just don't let it define you. Let your hope in Him define you today. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you today for your word, and I thank you for every heart, Lord, that's here today to receive it. And I pray, God, in these moments together, as we close, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, seal up this work in our hearts to bring hope in the midst of discouragement or grief or even depression, to, to let that seed of hope take root and to let it flourish in our lives, God. That even though it might be buffeted by storms or, or drought or whatever else, let that seed flourish and bear fruit in our lives. I thank you for doing this, Lord. For just a moment where you are this morning, I want to invite you, if you have experienced, if you are in the midst of a season of depression or discouragement, to let God minister to you, to let God encourage you today. Some of you might need to pray. Some of you might, not, might, you might need to sit down with a counselor and talk. Some of you might even need medical intervention. Some of you might need rest. Because we are physical, moral, spiritual, and emotional creatures. But I believe in this moment there's wisdom for you and grace for you to receive from God, even direction for a next step for you today, help for you right now. And if you would just open your heart to the Lord, I believe he'll, he'll start that process.